From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Rauschenbusch in Washington, D.C. And people say, well, we have the numbers, sure, but give me a radicalized, zealous minority that wakes up every day with purpose compared to a flabby, moderate majority, and that radicalized minority will cut through us like butter. This week, Interfaith Alliance convened an urgent briefing on Capitol Hill on the subject of Christian nationalism as a threat to the very fiber of our democracy. It's a movement to redefine religious freedom in the service of a narrow slice of American political Christianity with the goal of controlling the lives of the majority of Americans. Sadly, a growing number are buying into this narrative. Recently, Politico released a poll revealing fully 61% of Republicans now embrace the idea that America should declare itself a Christian nation. What are the implications of that for the rest of Americans who do not identify with Christianity, who are secular, or who adhere to a different faith tradition? And here come the midterm elections, where so much of this will be decided. Joining me on Capitol Hill for that urgent briefing this past Wednesday were author and activist Wajahat Ali, voting rights advocate Taylor Coleman, Interfaith Alliance of Iowa Executive Director Connie Ryan, and the Reverend Dr. Richard Sizek, Executive Director of Evangelicals for Democracy. We were hosted by U.S. Representative Jamie Raskin of Maryland. The event was titled, Christian Nationalism is on the Ballot in 2022. And this week, you will hear important highlights on State of Belief Radio. You can hear State of Belief on the radio and get the podcast on iTunes and all other podcast platforms. I urge you to subscribe to us today. State of Belief Radio is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation, I really want to thank you. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join in that work at interfaithalliance.org. And now, here are some highlights from Wednesday's briefing, Christian Nationalism is on the Ballot in 2022. Christian nationalism is a lens through which a growing number of Americans view their role in our society. It's not new. It's been a stain on our national conscience from the founding. But it has drawn recent mainstream attention after Christian nationalist symbols were ubiquitous during the violent attack on January 6th. Christian nationalism has its root in the dangerous myth that we were founded as a Christian nation, and because of that, enjoy special favor from God. Supporters of Christian nationalism seek a fusion of religious and civic life to the detriment of both. Polling shows that they are more likely to favor declaring the U.S. a Christian nation, tearing down the wall of separation between church and state, instituting prayer in school, and much more. For non-Christians and those who might not meet their definition of a real American, even if we are Christians ourselves, we are perpetually suspect in this worldview. The goal of Christian nationalism is the consolidation of power 
in the hands of an exclusive religious and political movement, and it is using, unfortunately, churches, courts, and increasingly electoral politics to gain power over the majority of the American people. In practice, this translates to suppression of voting rights, the promotion of white supremacy, and the policing of personal privacy, including the right to abortion and same-sex marriage. As the sociologist Andrew Whitehead wrote, Christian nationalism does not want a government for the people, by the people. It wants a government for a particular people, by a particular people. Interfaith Alliance is dedicated to working side by side with people from every political and religious background across the country to mobilize against Christian nationalism. On a personal note, as a Baptist pastor, I oppose Christian nationalism because I love my faith, and I love my neighbors of all different faiths and no faiths, and I respect them as equally deserving of the rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I also oppose Christian nationalism as a patriotic duty, as an American who is working, as James Baldwin put it, to achieve our country through the project of democracy for and by the people, all the people. What gives me hope are the people assembled in this room on the live stream and the people to my left. Wajahad Ali, Taylor Coleman, Connie Ryan, and Rich Sizek. And of course, Congressman Jamie Raskin each of whom is working hard not only to defeat Christian nationalism in their own context, but to lift up an alternative vision, one of inclusive religious freedom and democracy, where people of all faith traditions and none can flourish together as equals with dignity and respect for all. So I'm gonna briefly introduce each of these panels, who each of whom could be headlining this whole thing. So there, this is, I'm gonna do, we're, we're gonna do it, I asked them like three lines. They were like, okay, you know, I mean, these are, these are great people. I'm gonna introduce all of them at first and then we're gonna go down the line, okay? Wajahad Ali is the author of Go Back to Where You Came From and Other Helpful Recommendations on How to Become an American. <laughs> A Western State Center, Center Senior Fellow Working to Preserve Democracy and lead author and researcher of Fear, Inc., The Roots of the Islamophobia Network, published by the Center for American Progress. Taylor Coleman is a seventh-generation Texan, Van Lifer, you're gonna learn more about what that is, and voting rights advocate. After working for dozens of campaigns and causes across the country, she moved back to her home state of Texas to meet the fight for voting rights head-on. She now lives on the road full-time in her converted camper van that's named Barb for voting rights champion Congresswoman Barbara Jordan. She registers voters across the Lone State, shining a light on all the obstacles that make Texas the hardest state in the union in which to cast a ballot. Connie Ryan has served as executive director for the past 20 years at Interfaith Alliance Iowa, one of our 21 Alliance affiliates across the country. She is a leading voice across Iowa, engaging people from diverse religious and non-religious perspectives, protecting religious freedom while ensuring it is not misused to discriminate. Huh. 
Yes. Advancing civil rights and fairness for all those who are marginalized and uniting diverse voices to challenge extremism. The Reverend Dr. Rich Sizek, uh, certainly no one is least on this panel, but he, certainly he's not, is president of New Evangelical Partnership for the Common Good and executive director of Evangelicals for Democracy. His career as an advocate for climate change, human rights, and religious freedom include 28 years of government affairs with the National Association of Evangelicals. So please join me in a round of applause for these incredible panelists. Wajahat, I'm uh, gonna invite you to start to talk about personally how Christian uh, nationalism has impacted your, your life as a Muslim, as well as the Muslim community more broadly, and how you would see it impacting democracy, uh, including electoral politics. Good morning, Asalaamu Alaikum. How's everyone doing? That was, that was sad. All right, listen. I didn't drive all the way from Virginia for any of this foolishness, ladies and gentlemen. We are witnessing climate change, the rise of fascism, there's a pandemic, there's monkeypox now, and income inequality. Sometimes, the only way to know that you're alive is to be loud. So when I ask this audience how they're doing, I expect to hear from a living, breathing audience. How are you all doing this morning? A minus, could get better. Thank you to Paul for that warm introduction. Thank you to Interfaith Alliance for convening this important briefing on the threat of Christian nationalism to US national security, democracy, and religious freedoms. Fun times. I am a Muslim son of Pakistani immigrants who was born in the Bay Area, California in the year of Empire Strikes Back, 1980. My parents named me Wajahat, to blend. When I was a kid, I only spoke three words of English when my mother dropped me off at Child's Hideaway Preschool. Shut up, because my mother used to say shut up, because it was followed by idiot. And if anyone's an old head like me in the 80s, remember the Campbell Soup commercial, Uh-oh, oh, SpaghettiO? I was a fob kid, so I said, Uh-oh, oh, SpaghettiO. Shut up, idiot. Uh-oh, oh, SpaghettiO. But I learned English in ESL, English as a second language in first grade, and by watching cartoons and Hollywood action movies. I learned about faith and being a man of others while attending Bellarmine, an all-boys all Jesuit Catholic high school in San Jose. I'm a Muslim, by the way, yes. We did community service and read the Bible. And yours truly, the Muslim, received the highest grades in religious studies class in Bellarmine. I know. The Jesus I encountered in high school was a prophet who would love and embrace all immigrants and refugees, not use them as cruel political stunts or demonize them as invaders. He would feed the poor and the homeless and not ridicule them as lazy welfare queens. He would warn the rich about avarice and greed, and not rationalize their materialistic indulgences as the prosperity gospel. That Jesus and Christianity that I encountered in high school made me into a better Muslim, who eventually graduated with an English major from UC Berkeley, went to law school, married way up to a much smarter, hotter wife, and now writes for a living and makes Lego sets for his kids. Hashtag, it gets better, I love America. My story, is very unremarkable, precisely because it is so common in America, a young, evolving country, an idea where a shy, husky pants-wearing brown kid taught by Jesuit priests could grow up to be a proud Muslim who writes stories that are by us for everyone in the nation's capital. And yet my story, my very American story, 
is under threat due to Christian nationalism. A perverse ideology of cruelty and white supremacy, which has become one of the great enemies of US national security, pluralism, religious freedoms, and Christianity itself. This movement of hate has hijacked Jesus and transformed him into a radicalized, weaponized mascot, a warrior who will return with an AR-15 and use violence if necessary to restore order and supremacy in America for God's chosen stewards, white men. You don't have to take my word for it. You just have to see the videos from January 6, 2021, right across the street, where a failed violent insurrection in our nation's capital left five people dead. According to the February 2022 report that Paul mentioned, released by Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty and Freedom from Religious Foundation, Christian nationalism was a major motivator for the violent coup that sought to overturn a free and fair election by any violent means necessary. Fast forward to today, and we have GOP Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene openly embracing Christian nationalism and palling around with anti-Semitic white nationalist Nick Fuentes. We have Doug Mastriano, who's running for GOP governor of Pennsylvania, who said he doesn't believe in the separation of church and state, and he supports the big lie, and what a surprise, he was at the January 6th rally across the street. According to a political poll released last week, nearly 61% of Republicans now support declaring the United States a Christian nation. Well, so much for religious liberties, the separation of church and state, and the Constitution. In fact, the Supreme Court's recent ban on abortion violates the religious freedoms of Jews and Muslims, both communities that, by the way, allow for abortions. Also, say goodbye to marriage equality and the right to use contraceptives, which are also under threat. And since we're on a farewell tour, might as well tip your hat to people who look like me and fast during Ramadan. Muslims in particular are seen as a unique threat to this idyllic, romanticized Christian America. We must be neutralized because we are invaders trying to allegedly replace them. Our brotherhood of mutants includes feminists, Jews, immigrants of color, LGBTQ plus communities, and even other Christians and Republicans who don't agree with them. According to a source at DHS, Christian nationalism has become a major threat to communities of color, law enforcement, and houses of worship. But since we aren't talking about Muslims or black people, there's no war on terror. No color-coded terror alerts. No calls for moderate Christians to stand up and condemn this extremism. However, if we are to be honest for the next hour, and we should, another word for this growing Christian nationalism movement is fascism. Another word is national security threat. Another word in specific contexts is terrorism. The question for the majority and mainstream institutions is, Will we finally name it? Will we finally acknowledge it? Will we finally educate ourselves about this threat and confront it and white supremacy as the greatest threats to our national security today? Choose wisely, answer wisely, because our country's democracy and freedoms depend on it. Thank you. Taylor Coleman is a seventh-generation Texan, a longtime activist currently dedicating herself to voter registration in her home state. Uh, thank you again so much for having me. Um, so, yeah, most of you guys have heard by now that I, I do live full-time uh, in a van. My van um, is a converted camper 
Um, but before I get to how I ended up living in a van, I hope you'll indulge me in um, sort of what led me to that place. Uh, and it starts a, a very, very long time ago, um, in 1867. Um, some members of my family were among the first black Texans to register to vote. Um, this was when the Reconstruction Acts were passed and uh, folks went door to door registering the former enslaved um, so that they could have a voice in, you know, getting Texas readmitted to the Union. Um, and that was 1867. Uh, just a couple years later, in, in 1866, 1886, excuse me, um, there were uh, there was an election. It was a midterm election, a lot like this one. Well, hopefully not, <laughs> a lot like this one. Um, and uh, there were a lot of uh, freedmen now who were working the polls. Um, there had been, of course, during this time, this was the fall of Reconstruction. Um, a lot of violence. And um, of course, since it's Texas, um, you know, the black freedmen, they were at the polls ready to protect the ballot box. Um, and that just was not abided uh, by a lot of the very powerful people um, who were in charge. So when uh, folks stormed that ballot box to steal um, the ballots from this majority black precinct in central Texas, um, the black men defended themselves, and over the course of the next month, um, of course, uh, the men who were involved were arrested and then lynched. Mm. And um, right across the street in the U.S. Senate, there was a hearing about this outrage that took place in Texas that overturned the results of a free and fair election. Um, but because, of course, it was a midterm, the Congress was up. Um, and so they had hearings and it was sort of uh, what led to the discussion and the preparation of legislation for the first federal elections bill, um, which would have been in 1890, um, which we of course now know did not pass, uh, which led to the disenfranchisement all over the South um, for um, black people all across, all across the country. Um, and we did not, of course, really become a democracy until you know, nearly 100 years later. Um, so, like members of my family who registered to vote in 1867, I'm, I'm very proud that one of the things that I do keep in my van uh, is that voter registration roll um, that we found. Uh, there are great record collections for some reason, uh, Captain Texas. Um, you know, just as that election could be overturned in 1886, um, as I bought this van during the pandemic, um, we know what happened in January of 2021. Um, and it was just so stark to me that what we were seeing was something that is not new. Um, this is a, a very ugly current. Um, and the same Klansman who, you know, I know did not have the word for it back then, but would have been considered Christian nationalists that overturned that election in 1886, um, those undercurrents are, are clearly um, still with us today. And so that's how I ended up living in a van. Uh, you know, when I bought the van during the pandemic, I, I don't really think that I thought that I would be registering voters. Um, and then January 6th happened and I just, I, I couldn't believe it. I, I didn't want to believe it. Um, and then six months after that, uh, the Texas Democrats had to leave the state um, to attempt to 
um, stop legislation that would have made it even harder to vote in Texas, which unfortunately that legislation did pass. Um, and it just became very clear to me that, you know, if I'm going to, you know, van life became this huge thing on Instagram during uh, the pandemic uh, for a minute, I thought I was going to be able to do the conversion myself. And it is much harder than they make it look on YouTube. <laughs> um, um, but luckily, you know, after handing it over to the professionals, I had really, you know, I, I shared with them what my purpose was, um, a fully converted voter registration mobile. Um, and so I knew that, you know, if I was going to be lucky enough to be able to spend my time traveling the state and, you know, getting to visit all the state parks and doing all the stereotypical van life things that I really wanted to um, take a look back and, you know, draw inspiration from the same thing that would have inspired members of my family all the way back in 1867 to say, you know, as, as hard as it is now to vote, I can't even imagine what that would have been like um, to try to do that in 1867. Um, and so to play some small role, you know, they went door to door to get uh, their fellow communities and fellow Texans involved and explain to them how they would be able to establish freedom schools by taking advantage um, of the new ballot access that they had um, and how I could also play a role in making sure that my fellow Texans understand that like, it's not necessarily a political issue, but in order to have a say um, in what the future of our state is gonna look like, um, just like in 1867, how they were able to take a look forward and see you know, what is the future of Texas gonna look like uh, for us to be readmitted to this great country. Um, I felt like it was sort of my role um, to do whatever I could to talk to, I mean, even if I just started with my nearly 100 first cousins um, and explaining to them uh, why it's so important to, to, to vote in every single election and register as many people as possible. Um, and while doing so, shining a light on exactly how hard it is um, to register and to participate in elections in Texas um, and, and sort of use that flashlight um, to explain what the stakes are and show people just how similar and close we are um, to repeating the same mistakes that we made all the way back in, in 1886. And that is why I'm here with you guys today. There's much more from the Interfaith Alliance Capitol Hill briefing. Christian nationalism is on the ballot in 2022, coming right up. If you miss any part of today's programming, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief anytime on our website. You'll also find links to the topics we discussed this week, extended interviews and transcripts, and an archive of past shows, all at stateofbelief.com. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, religion and radio done differently. At this week's Christian Nationalism is on the ballot in 2022 briefing on Capitol Hill, we heard from Interfaith Alliance of Iowa Executive Director Connie Ryan. Well, first, I want to say thank you, Paul, for the invitation to be on this amazing panel, and thank you to the staff of Interfaith Alliance. Um, I have worked with this organization, as you said, 20 years, and am so grateful for all the people that have been on staff at the national level in supporting the affiliates across the state. In Iowa, we um, we 
used to pride ourselves in being a purple state. We always said that we were a purple state. We had um, both Senator Chuck Grassley, who is still our senator, in office at the same time that we had Senator Tom Harkin, one of the most conservative and one of the most liberal senators um, in the U.S. Congress. And um, while Senator Harkin has retired, um, with that has also gone um, some of that idea of being a purple moderate state. Um, and I will take you to 2010. And if you remember the year of 2010 and the, the elections then, um, that's when the Tea Party wave happened, right? And in Iowa, that looked like the social issues. It was not the financial side of the Tea Party. It was the social issues that were, were really coming into the state we had um, the courts had um, made the decision on Varnum, which was the marriage equality state, um, decision in our state far before um, that happened at a federal level. And so there was pushback on that in tw the 2011 session. We also, um, Republicans also took the, the governor's seat and the House of Representatives in, in Iowa um, in 2010. And so we were seeing this shift, right? Um, this shift into some the beginnings of some extreme legislation. Fast forward to 2016, and Republicans took the Senate also, so they now have the trifecta and have had the trifecta for six years. And so we began to see even more legislation that was extreme um, and based in this concept of Christian nationalism. And I want to highlight three different areas in particular that, that impact Iowans. Um, public education by far is the biggest piece of that. And the number of pieces of legislation, not all passed, but certainly introduced. And so it, it introduces the concepts into the public narrative as well. So ideas that you've seen across the nation, we have all of it in Iowa. Banning of books, telling teachers what they can and cannot um, teach, whitewashing of our nation's history. Um, we had a piece of legislation this last year that would have said that schools can teach a Bible-specific class um, in their schools. Now, we have no trouble with teaching world religions, and, and we think that actually they should teach world religions, but to put into Iowa code that you can teach specifically the Bible um, as a Bible class um, is just egregious to us. Um, so all of those things, and, and really the demonization of public schools in general, the demonization of public educators in general, um, has been part of the narrative that we have seen in Iowa. Civil rights is another piece, particularly for folks who are LGBTQ, and particularly under that, transgender Iowans have just seen an enormous amount of legislation, and that drives the public narrative. When you have elected officials who are demonizing you and telling you that you are not worthy, um, an example of that is a bill that did pass, and our governor, with great pride, with cisgender white girls surrounding her in the Capitol signed a bill that um, would not allow trans girls, both at the high school and collegiate level, they cannot participate in girls' sports. Well, I'm sorry, trans women are women, and they should be able to um, participate in women's sports. Thank you. I'm glad that you agree. Um, and so that was passed by the Iowa legislature. It was signed into law, and that is law um, in Iowa currently. And so we will continue to fight that. But there's a whole host of bills that we see every year, including RIFR bills and et cetera, um, bills to take uh, gender identity out of the Civil Rights Code of Iowa. We have very strong civil rights 
code in Iowa, but wanting to strip rights away, which has never been done. Um, and then the other area is, of course, reproductive freedom. We have seen not only Dobbs, but at the state level, um, we have attacks, um, ongoing attacks on reproductive freedom and the right to access abortion by those who um, need that um, medical procedure. Um, we see that in the legislature. We also are seeing that a shift in our courts as well because the governor controls who sits on the, the courts. We have a nominating process, retention process, um, but the governor does have the final say. And so we're seeing a shift in that and um, now have a fully conservative court, um, Supreme Court in Iowa. So all of those pieces are um, damaging to our state, damaging to the society of our state, damaging to rights and the impact of Iowans in our state. Um, and it, the main piece of what I want you to hear is the normalization. The normalization of this narrative that is coming from the Christian right, that is coming through Christian nationalism, um, and it is infiltrating. Um, we have legislators who would have been moderate five, six, seven years ago, and they are moving. They're, they're moving and shifting toward that Christian national. We hear that when they debated on the floor. We hear that when they're talking with the media. We hear that when they um, choose, to choose to talk with their constituents, uh, which is not very often. And so it is, it is that shift at the state level that is normalizing um, what, um, what we talk about and what is acceptable in our state. What we try to do as an organization is empower Iowans to use their voices. And um, I'm at the State House when the legislature is at the State House. It is important to have that voice, and, and um, I am often quoted in the media. But what is really the power is Iowans who are pushing back on that, empowering Iowans to use their voices, voting, um, and, and making sure that people understand connecting the issues over here of reproductive freedom, um, civil rights, public education, all of those pieces, connecting that with their vote and why their vote matters and that they can no longer sit on the sidelines. And so grateful for the opportunity to have this conversation and I will pass it off to my colleague here. Thank you, Connie. Uh, Rich, if you can uh, offer us your experience specifically with, you know, from within the evangelical community around uh, how Christian nationalism is manifesting itself with many of, um, with many of the people who you consider co-religionists, um, but who uh, now feel in opposition. Thank you, Paul. It's a pleasure to be here and see so many old friends. God bless you all. Uh, my story is in part the story of the development of evangelicalism in America in as much as I was the longest serving staff member in the history of the National Association of Evangelicals when I was unceremoniously uh, ejected. And that happened uh, 28 years after I began the organization, but I want to begin with a short anecdote. One of my first ideas in coming to work in 1980 was to challenge Ronald Reagan to address what I thought was the evil empire of its day. And I wrote a letter to him and said so, and the speechwriters, uh, including Dana Rohrbacher and Terry Dolan and others, called up and said, we want to talk to you. And so out of that conversation evolved a speech, which was delivered in 1983. And I had some inkling of what the content would be, but not entirely. But it was a rousing speech. 
16 standing ovations for the president to this group that had never before hosted the president of the United States. He delivered what was you know, a message which I supported, uh, namely that the Soviet Union for its violations of human rights and the rest needed to be called out. He did it. But then something happened. At the end of the speech, the president's own band broke into, you might not have guessed, but I'll tell you, onward Christian soldiers marching as to war. And I was appalled. I knew what the reason was. I think it was to enlist these evangelicals in a battle which they had already been part of for more than 40 years, namely uh, the battle against the Soviet Union and communism and the rest. These were the foot soldiers evangelicals were in so many ways. But here in that one little illustration, I learned something that I would never forget, namely that politicians will take evangelicals and turn them into uh, biddable foot soldiers for one political party. And the shift in those years of my service, Rabbi David Saperstein is here, and we worked together on many projects, but the shift that occurred in my own community was, you see, moving from what was what I thought was the meaning of that hymn, namely, uh, the, sword of the, uh, the sword of the spirit, wielded by evangelicals on behalf of caring for our neighbors has over this time become a literal claim by soldiers, Christian soldiers, that this is and must be a Christian nation. And that's a huge movement. And the fact that evangelical leaders won't speak out about it is what really, uh, in fact, precipitated my departure. Because when I spoke out, 28 years later on behalf of civil unions in an interview with Terry Gross, I was never asked, I was fired for that comment supporting civil unions, sounds rather innocuous nowadays, right? <laughs> but it happened. Uh, I was never asked, for example, why? Uh, and I would have answered if I had been asked, well, sir, there is a 14th Amendment and there is a due process and equal protection clause in the Constitution that protects people. But you see, over that 28 years, a lot went uh, under the water. And what it was was a shift. And I would like to say to these evangelicals um, that I have worked with and love and consider myself one of, that uh, we can no longer not repent of what is occurring, first of all, and uh, no more excuses for what has occurred. And we have to stand up. And I would say, in order to be able to stand up, which is my final point here, first of all, we have to see and think more clearly. And I would suggest a whole lot of meta-thinking needs to go on in our own community about what democracy is. And if you were to ask an evangelical what Christian nationalism is, they probably couldn't define it. They just know they're part of it or believe in it. I would suggest, I, I like best of all the definition that it's a, you know, it's a, uh, political idolatry dressed up as religious orthodoxy. That's what Christian nationalism is. And we have to see as evangelicals and think more clearly about it. About 45 million evangelicals, if you include the born-again Hispanics, are in this community, which we are attempting to influence by saying that the factors which lead to it, namely uh, being a political conservative, a belief in the Bible, having apocalyptic visions of a, you know, social decline, divine militarism, mm, January 6th. These are all factors which contributed 
to this Christian nationalism that's held by over half of our community. But let me, by way of saying, uh, seeing this and thinking clearly, you also need to understand that evangelicalism isn't synonymous with Christian nationalism. What is occurring is, in fact, that uh, Christian nationalism often influences behavior in the opposite direction uh, other than traditional religious commitments that even these evangelicals have. Therefore, being an evangelical doesn't sour one to gun control, but Christian nationalism does. Same for border walls with Mexico. Christian nationalism is what does that. And so what we are attempting to do through Evangelicals for Democracy is to communicate inspirational, faith-based, non-attack, non-partisan messages designed to persuade. And so here's the shift that has to occur. We call them the five Ds of democracy. And they are moving from deny, ran into a man on the street the other day, we got into a conversation, and I said, do you believe in democracy? He said, of course not, not even our founders believe in democracy. So it goes from deny to deliberate, to design, to defending, uh, doing, and then defending. It's I won't believe, I might believe, I will, I am, and I have. That's the shift that has to occur. And in a certain sense, uh, that's what we have to sell. And we use this uh, model for urging believers to take what is a pledge. And the pledge is not the traditional pledge of allegiance, although we include it. It's the pledge you see to these commitments. You see, namely, that we will oppose election deniers and liars. And we can win the support, we believe, of these centrist and right-leaning evangelicals uh, who will and then determine the outcome of elections by a, uh, by a communication uh, process, by, uh, you know, digital ads, uh, emails, uh, TikTok. Imagine Rich Sizek doing uh, a TikTok at the Religious Freedom uh, Monument in Fredericksburg, Virginia, holding the eight ball and saying, uh, Mr. Eight Ball, is America a Christian nation? Answer from Mr. Eight Ball, definitely not. <laughs> so we have to, first of all, help our own community to see and think more clearly about this and what it is it isn't. And then secondly, to help them to care more deeply. And the black regiment were those preachers, sometimes called the black robes of the Revolutionary War, who stood up in their pulpits. And we need those today who will proclaim the evils of stealing elections or you know, trying to steal elections, restricting voting rights, and the like. And Jefferson referred to pulpit oratory that ran like a shock of electricity through the colonies, and that's what we need in our evangelical community in order to prevent what I say will be the detonation of a, a bomb, a roadside bomb that blows up, and it will occur unless we take these actions. And so, and that uh, leads me to point three. Look, uh, we need to act really boldly. And Whitehead has been referred to, that's Andrew Whitehead and Sam Perry in their book, Taking America Back for God. And what they reveal in the book is fascinating, which is that among the Christian nationalists, you have the rejectors, 22%, the resistors who are 25%, the Christians who reside in most pews, Protestant and Catholic in this country, who are accommodators, that's 30%, and lastly, the crusaders, what they call, uh, what they call um, ambassadors. I'm not sure you can be an ambassador and really believe what these people believe because that's not their strategy, but nonetheless, they use the term. And these are the people who want to institutionalize Christian nation ideas into law and policy. 
Our project is to aim our messages to the 59%, the two out of three Americans who are open to our messages of faith and democracy. Our lastly, uh, one little illustration, Paul, our ads, a warning, asks, was Judas the first Christian nationalist? Others are following in his footsteps. Beware of the wolf in sheep's clothing. In conclusion, like unto Judas, Christian nationalism betrays our faith. What would Jesus do? Reject it. And so must we. That's the Reverend Dr. Richard Sizick, Executive Director of Evangelicals for Democracy, speaking at this week's Interfaith Alliance Capitol Hill briefing. Christian nationalism is on the ballot in 2022. The first one is, what is the role of faith leaders in addressing Christian nationalism? What is the theology that undergirds and strengthens Christian nationalism? Is Christian nationalism a partisan issue, or is it democracy at stake? Uh, how can we get more Americans to recommit to fighting Christian nationalisms and the separation of church and state? And, um, and <laughs> here's... Here's an, uh, the, the question of um, what's Donald Trump's relationship to all of this? Do we want to, does anybody feel called to address Donald Trump by name? Um, and, you know, that, that, that is up to our panelists. But any, why, why don't we just go back down the line? And we really, we, we have uh, about 10 minutes now. So if we can see, see what sparks you. But I'm really, I am very eager to hear what each of you thinks that is the most pressing thing and the most effective thing we can do to counteract Christian nationalism, as well as these excellent questions. Taylor, it looks like you're ready. Go. Oh, sure, I, I will start. Um, I guess uh, two points, you know, to the question about the theology that undergirds Christian nationalism. Um, I, I think that's such a good question, because for me, I actually bristle a bit every time I hear the word Christian nationalism or, or nationalism next to Christian, because when I look at the folks who are leading this movement, I don't see any Christianity. You know, I grew up um, Southern Baptist in an evangelical household, and to me, they don't represent my faith. I don't concede that label to them at all. What I do see is the very same racism that we've always had. And I think that, you know, as, as far as the theology that undergirds it, you know, I, I, if, if racism could be considered a theology, you know, that's what I would say that it is. You know, I have family that, you know, we went to church every Sunday, some Wednesdays, some Saturdays <laughs> growing up. And, you know, none of them were at the Capitol on January 6th. You know, they vote for Republicans. They're very conservative. We don't agree on choice. Um, so I think we have to be very clear about what actually that is and, you know, meeting people where they are when we talk about it. Um, and as for what, you know, we can all do, um, you know, as another sort of nod um, to my evangelical upbringing on um, Saturdays, you know, when I was little, we would, um, uh, you know, our church would um, spend the day what we would call witnessing. You know, we would go door to door and, you know, invite people in our community to our church and, you know, see how they were doing and, you know, uh, invite them to really join and help build community with us. Um, and as crazy as it was, I mean, especially for me, like an eight-year-old uh, who wanted to be watching cartoons on a Sunday morning, you know, what was really effective 
you know, whether folks were Christian or not or interested or not, to see members of their community so moved to show up on their doorstep 9 a.m. on a Saturday gave them sort of a pause and say, well, whatever is so important to push them um, to come and talk to me on, you know, their day off, I, I want to see a little bit about what that is. And, you know, I can't remember a single Saturday where we would all end up back at church and not a single new person had joined or, or, or wanted to learn more about us. And so I think, you know, as I'm out on the road, you know, in the van registering voters, I see some of that same sentiment. And I think that we have to bring that same energy to going door to door in our own communities and showing with our actions how big the stakes are. Because I think if we're willing to show up um, uh, you know, and, and talk to folks about this at times when it's not always convenient for us, more than any argument that we could have with anyone to try to convince them to, to see um, our way of thinking, our actions that brought us to their doorstep at a time where we could all be sitting at home watching TV, I think goes a much further um, uh, way in, in convincing people um, to sort of uh, come online to, to, to our viewpoints and, and recognize the stakes um, that this threat brings to all of our communities. Thank you. Connie, you or Adrian? If you believe in our democracy and if you believe that Christian nationalism is um, doing damage to our democracy, then you cannot sit on the sidelines. We need you to act. We need you to be part of the solution. We need you to use your voice. We need you to empower others also to educate them on the issues and the impact that Christian nationalism is having at the, at the national level and also at the state and local level. Um, we need you to stand up for public schools. We need you to stand up for civil rights. Um, and um, do work on racial justice and uh, protecting public schools and reproductive freedom and rights for the LGBTQ community. We need you to be in the game. Um, and so part of that is joining organizations like Interfaith Alliance, right? Joining Americans United, joining um, the ACLU, whatever that is in your community, whoever is doing the work and has the, is building the power, um, amongst uh, folks who believe in our democracy and that Christian nationalism is doing harm. Um, join that organization and do the work with them, provide them financial support, all of those pieces. But we have to do this work together. Um, and we cannot do it in silos. And so a lot of times in the progressive movements, we end up being in silos, doing this and doing that. It is very much integrated work and that we have to do this work together. So if you are, if you care about racial justice, you should also care about LGBTQ rights. You should also care about public education. You should be doing all of those pieces together. And at the end of the day, you should be making sure that people understand that their vote matters and you should be helping people to vote. And that is the work that we have to do for, not only for the midterms, but we're not fixing this by 2022, right? And so we have to do this work together continuously over the next however many years it takes until we take back our nation from Christian nationalists. Thank you so much. Roger, uh, <clears throat> I'm going to answer every question in less than 90 seconds. Uh, <laughs> what's the role of faith leaders? Uh, you have to have skin in the game. You have to step up. You have to speak out. You have to be willing to take some arrows. That's it. You can't be a spectator anymore. 
if you don't speak out, uh, you can't expect us to speak out for you to your congregants, uh, to your community. Message and messengers matter. And specifically, I'm looking at white folks and white Christians. You have to speak up at your churches. You have to speak up in your community centers. You have to speak up at home. And you have to tolerate the discomfort, the short-term discomfort, to create the long-term change. That's the truth. That's the blunt reality. There's only so much the rest of us can do. Theology, it's white supremacy. White supremacy and Christian nationalism are like this intertwined. It's a theology, a paradigm, and infrastructure of hate and superiority that says America belongs to only one group and the rest of us at best are guests with conditions. Partisan or democracy at stake, it's our democracy is at stake. They want power by any means necessary. They believe that God himself has given them a celestial stamp of approval to use any means necessary to purify this nation, this special nation, and they and they alone are the stewards of this land. They don't care about democracy. They don't care about separation of church and state. They don't care about the rule of law. They care about power. And they believe that they are the good guys, the heroes of the story, and the victims. They're not the villains, ladies and gentlemen. Stories matter. They believe that they are the heroes and the victims, and we are the villains for trying to desecrate this holy land with our secular beliefs of, <laughs> of separation of church and state, you know, women's rights, marriage equality. So this is literally democracy at stake, but thanks to, unfortunately, uh, a lens of both sides, it has become a partisan issue. It is not. Uh, how to get more Americans to reconnect? Believe it or not, if you tell Americans about the threat, if you educate them, if you put it in the media, if you talk about it at school, they're informed and they care. I'll give you one quick example. Americans won't care about the impeachment. Americans won't care about January 6th. Let's just bum rush through these hearings. They did the hearings. As a result of these excellent hearings that were done sometimes in prime time and also during the day in the media coverage, guess what? More awareness. And now, according to the polls, one of the leading issues leading up to the midterms is defense of democracy. Another issue is, wait for it, abortion rights. Who would have thought? Kitchen table issues. What's Trump's role? He is seen as Cyrus. He is seen as the pagan king whom nonetheless God has chosen at this moment to do God's work. He is flawed, that's okay, but he is our vehicle and our Trojan horse. This is how they think about him. After Trump leaves, it'll be DeSantis, Marjorie Taylor Greene. So if you sit there and say, but it's hip hypocritical, they don't care. Who is the most powerful messenger and vehicle for them to achieve their goals? That's what Trump is right now. And people say, when Trump is gone, this threat is gone. Nope, Trumpism is here to stay. It will just create a new avatar. That avatar right now is DeSantis, Abbott, and Marjorie Taylor Greene. What we need, and I'll end on this, is what Connie was saying, and just to connect the dots, a multicultural coalition of the willing, this interfaith alliance. I call it the ethnic Avengers, standing up to Thanos, which is white supremacy. There's no other way to do it, ladies and gentlemen. There's no other way to do it. And people say, well, we have the numbers, sure, but give me a radicalized, zealous minority that wakes up every day with purpose compared to a flabby, moderate majority and that radicalized minority will cut through us like butter. And when we have come together at a local level, we have pushed back on school boards. They were dominating on school boards until we pushed back. They're telling you their strategy. We're gonna take over school board by school board, medical board by medical board, the precinct strategy, poll watchers, church by church. It is a local, national, international strategy at play. When we have the numbers and we consolidate and we get together, go local by local, we win. Voting rights, poll watchers, precincts, school boards. I need the churches to now step up.
Thank you for your time. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. I'd love to hear from you as well. I agree with all that. Thank you. Excellent. I agree with every part of it. I would add some insights, at least regards to the evangelicals. Um, I don't think they're being persuaded by being threatened. I don't see them as responding. Most won't say they are, but psychologists say that it takes seven years sometimes for people to make that shift intellectually, that meta-think, that you know, metacognition, and many of them are changing. And uh, they're changing because, let's sadly say, because uh, pastors are looking into the pews and they're saying, uh, the great awakening, no. This is called the great abdication, especially among young. And when pastors see that, that departure, then they're influenced. And so we have to bring the truth to them. I am sort of a, of a mind that our approach is working. We tried it, uh, quite frankly, uh, four years ago, at least in the last presidential election, and aimed at Trump voters who were open to hearing another point of view. And we persuaded them to move over based upon an approach that was uh, a bit of a soft sell at first, but it was designed not to inflame. And so I say, if we claim the right to influence, we have to accept the responsibility not to inflame, but to educate and move people to see what we're talking about. And like was said, uh, we have to vote. And these evangelicals who were Trump voters voted for Biden. And they made the shift because they understood, among other things, that it uh, was a contradiction of their faith uh, to do what Donald Trump asked. And so, yes, uh, right now groups like QAnon are gaining strength with the help of Donald Trump and they preach violence. And let's be clear, all of us agree, that is an offense and it's an offense against God and we have to speak out against it, vote uh, and do so at every level, every level, top to bottom and throw the rascals out. So friends, uh, I think that this has been remarkable. It has been, I just want to thank the, this panel again for uh, their wisdom, their passion, what they are doing on the ground. We're, we're, we, hope, we feel more hope because we've heard from you, but also it's been a theme that Together, this is something we have to do together. And so I am looking forward to all of the friends that I see around this room and everyone on the live stream to really think about ways that we can cooperate with one another and find ways that we can lift up a vision of America that invites people of all faith and no faith to come together to be respected. This should, I, I, what I hope and I think you have, you have heard is that there's a desire for Christians to be Christians, as we have a desire for Jews to be Jews and people who have no faith to be exactly who they are and be guided by their own morality. So this is not meant to point fingers, it's, it's meant to be an invitation, extending of the hand to everyone across our country to achieve our country, as Baldwin has said. So, so thank you all for being here. You can find more information on the materials mentioned and the partnerships raised up during this Capitol Hill briefing, Christian Nationalism is on the Ballot in 2022.
and watch the video of the entire event at interfaithalliance.org. Our briefing in Washington was bracing as well as inspiring. We see the challenge ahead, but we also see so many people working with vigor and intelligence to counteract Christian nationalism in every area of our society. Over the next weeks, you'll be hearing more about Christian nationalism on this show, and I urge you to come back and tune in, and also tune in to this election cycle. It is extremely important that we all get out there and vote. Vote our values, vote our freedom, and vote for a country in which all religious traditions, as well as those who adhere to no religious tradition, are equally valued and are treated equally under the law. Well, I'm afraid that's all the time we've got for this week's show. Your financial support helps to keep us on the air. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the free weekly State of Belief podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. And join the conversation. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at State of Belief, and share State of Belief with the people in your life. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week for more stories from the intersection of religion, government, and politics. Until then, as founding host of State of Belief, Welton Gaddy would say, you all take care of each other. And as Rabbi Jack Moline would say, go team. I'm Paul Rauschenbusch, and that's State of Belief. I think it's time we stop, children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down.